You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. We know that 10,000 medical errors happen daily, but most aren't deadly serious. But here's how many are. What if every week, 60 737s full? What if every week, 60 737s filled with passengers went down? What if every week, 34 movie theaters full of people burned down? Every week. That's how many we lose to medical errors, over 700 daily. And by comparison, we lose about 20% of that to opioid deaths, which is all in the news. So this is right behind cancer and heart disease as a cause of death. We're expecting about 405,000 to 450,000. The problem is coroners don't use medical error as a cause of death. It's something you have to work backwards and figure out. And every state has different laws for reporting cause of death. So medical errors, you're actually safer in your car or in an airplane than in a hospital, unfortunately. What's a related dirty little secret most don't know about their doctor related to this problem? Burnout. It's a major contributor to medical errors. And there's a better than 50-50 chance your primary care physician, which is your family doc, your mom's ob your kid's PD, your grandma's internal medicine doc, 50-50 chance better than that if they're a PCP that they are also burned out. So your attending nurse, even worse. Same odds. Your specialist, about 4 in 10, have burnout. So your docs and nurses likely are not at their A game when they're handling your care. There's no other profession this badly frazzled. What's going on? Well, so what drives burnout? Let's look at the root causes. The surveys say EHR is a big headache, and people feel like a typist when they're not able to talk to their patient, but they're stuck in their keyboard. Factory medicine is also uh, listed because it's forced on docs to make a simple living. I say those surveys are asking the wrong question. There's a root cause to the root causes. It's about primary care and ER have really become a bad business model. In fact, on a business model score, they'll rate about a one to two out of a 12. It's as bad as it gets. So it's not EHR, it's not poor face time with your patient, it's not volume pressures. These are symptoms, not the root cause, which is a bad model. I'm aware of two rapid fixes to this bad model problem. Direct primary care solves that problem and ancillary income solves that problem. They're obvious and quick solutions to burnout and medical errors by extension. The top 1% PCPs that use one or both strategies to take their business in a different model direction also score about in the middle of the 12 score as a model. So how else can we actually be relieving the burden of PCPs and ER docs? Ask the guy who won an award at the largest primary care group nationally for doing just that. Meet our guest today, Dr. Yuli Chetapali. He is a triple threat, I call him, because he's an academician, he's a practicing ER physician, and he's an entrepreneur, innovator, MD, and author. Let me tell you more about Dr. Chetapali. 
He's very passionate about technology-enabled care that can decrease the burden for physicians and increase their quality for their patients. He's designed, developed, and implemented a clinical decision support system to deliver real-time guidance at the point of care, which I'm just incredibly curious about what that looks like. To decrease the cognitive burden on physicians and improve patient outcomes in 21 hospitals at Kaiser, he received the Pioneer Award uh, for his team, and he also won another team award uh, at Kaiser Permanente for his groundbreaking work. So, Dr. Chetapali, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to be speaking with you. Tell us more about what this platform looks like for the physician and then for the patient. So the platform is called RISTRA, it stands for Risk Stratification. If you think about an emergency physician's work uh, in the emergency department, it is mostly trying to figure out, is this case gonna get worse or is it gonna get better? Mainly, it's a triage function. So to understand the triage function, and also to understand each patient's risk, we developed a system that can look at all of patient's data that is living in the EHR, analyze that data, and provide clinical decision support to the physician at the point of care, which is where, while they're seeing the patient in real time. So that's the one-line description, although it's complicated. So let me give you an example. And the example is um, one of the most common conditions. You know, patients come to the emergency with chest pain. And uh, chest pain is, uh, can be dangerous because, you know, it could be a heart attack or something bad like that. So how does the physician know if this patient is having a heart attack? You know, what they usually do is uh, they will talk with the patient, talk about symptoms, talk about how long have they've had the chest pain, what type of pain, et cetera, et cetera. But they also run some tests, you know, blood tests, EKG, and then they wash them in the emergency department. If they feel that the patient is at, you know, moderately high risk, they'll observe the patient in an observation unit or sometimes they'll admit them to the hospital. Now, we know that only a, a small percentage of these patients actually are at risk. Uh, a bulk of these patients, you know, stay in the hospital for a day or two and then they go home. But for a physician to make that decision, he needs more than just the lab and EKG data and the history data. So we devised a system which looks at all this data, patient's history, patient's demographics, the symptoms and signs and EKG and uh, lab test results, mainly the troponin test results. And we put that into a calculator and the calculator comes up with an answer. And the answer could be this person's chance of having a heart attack in the next seven days is 0.03% or something like that. And based on this risk, it also gives a suggestion to the physician saying that since this risk is so low, you can actually do A, B, and C, which is you know send the patient home, or it can say, repeat the test in two hours, 
or it can say call the cardiologist if it is high enough risk. And so that's what it basically does. Is your calculator a moving target in that as we learn more and more about, say, heart risk, that um, your calculations will change so that, well, no, this is definitely indigestion or something else? Is, is it a set algorithm or is it a moving target? So the way we designed the study, it, it's a research study, obviously. Um, we are doing a clinical trial. And then as we get results, we adjust the calculator based on the results. So it gets better and better with each iteration. Mm-hmm. Well, that, some people call that artificial intelligence. Is this that? It is, it is getting to that. Uh, we are not doing the calculations based on the current data, although for that patient it is current data. What we did was, before we started this, we did a retrospective study, looking at 100,000 patients to see what happens when we use these calculators on these patients. And so based on that, we built this system, like an application. Okay. Um, so what influenced you to work on this change? Did you get a spark in the middle of the night? What, what, uh, what, what led to this? Yeah, this happened about you know, 10 years ago while I was trying to figure out what I should do other than, you know, seeing patients in the emergency is great. But as a physician, you know, I am changing the life of one patient at a time. I was wondering, you know, is there a better way of taking care of these patients? And uh, that's when the electronic health records have become popular. And within our system at uh, Kaiser, you know, we have become paperless and we've had uh, data for several years on these patients. And I thought, oh, it'll be interesting to go back and look at these. And myself and another physician scientist, we banded together, started this group called Crest Network. And we started studying uh, different disease patterns, for example, stroke. You know, what happens when uh, you have a, an order set for these stroke patients? Do they really need a swallow evaluation? Does that make any difference in the outcome? So one of the good things about electronic health records is you can actually go back and look at the data to see what the outcomes are. And hopefully that will help you change you know, what you're doing with the patient so that you can better the outcomes. So let's both agree that this is something that makes really good sense. And let's say that the largest PCP group in the country recognizes it as such. How does something like this spread into what's famously a slow adopting world? That's a major challenge. Well, the first major challenge is uh, it's the, the business model of healthcare. So one of the things with more uh, data-based decision-making is that it works great in a value-based system. It does not work great in a fee-for-service system. So if majority of population is under a fee-for-service system, then this will not work because one of the reasons why we collect data is to make the outcomes better and better. And that may not make 
business sense for a fee-for-service system. So first thing is it has to be value-based. So the second thing is that you have to have a certain amount of data already in your system. So that means that you have to have a good EHR system, which has, which has collected data on, on your patients for the last several years. So some of the large systems have these, and uh, they do have large teams of analytics people working on these. So the third requirement would be you need to have skilled people. So a system like Kaiser Permanente has, you know, in Northern California, we have about 600 or so researchers that are looking at various things. Um, and they need to be obviously, you know, you need statisticians, you need, you know, programmers, you need, you need the infrastructure to be able to do that. What do you need, think needs to happen with this model or this software to, for the world to uh, use it so that it's in a practical sense in every office in America? Yeah. So, uh, number one, you know, you need the electronic health record. You, you cannot do this uh, without an, a solid electronic health record system. Um, and you need people. You need leaders who understand the value of, of this kind of uh, clinical decision support system. Now, when you think about, you know, practice of medicine, you know, they say it is art and science. And um, so the, in order to be able to do the art part, you need to have a solid science backing you up. And so I see data science as the solid science that will help the physicians. What other challenges are you facing in getting this support system out there? The biggest challenge is, um, is uh, uh, fear and lack of um, education, I would say. Especially, you know, some of our leaders, um, they need to be educated that, you know, this is the way the future is going to be. And so instead of worrying about oh, you know, will this work? Will this break down? Will this uh, uh, take away jobs? Will this, you know, so there are a lot of worries that people are scared of um, machine learning and, uh, and artificial intelligence in general in healthcare. So I would say that education and um, having people test these things at, uh, at a small scale. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know that um, people are as afraid of it as they don't understand that it's going to give them superpowers. They're going to be able to have much better control of their patient's care. They're going to have much better. Sh it could be a shorter visit if you get all the data right in front of you. You don't have to uh, rummage around and figure out what's going on when you have some other tool helping you with your decision. So uh, decisions for it's perfect, perfect name for it, isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. So what we have seen is that the length of stay decreases, um, the downstream testing decreases, the admission rates decrease, and the patients are happier because now they get a real uh, estimate of their risk. And so everybody understands. And then the physician is happier because they don't have to uh, um, stress so much about their decisions because now they have some support that will help them make the right decisions. And so we are seeing some great outcomes from this system. 
So, Dr. Chetapalli, I want to take this conversation in a slightly different direction maybe than I even thought it was going to go. But it seems to me that right now about a third of the physicians are over 55 years old, and they're, they're notoriously slow adopters. People that have been doing it their own way for decades aren't going to adopt something new and exciting like this. Um, and as they're retiring and uh, leaving the practices, there's not enough physicians to take their place. So we have a doctor shortage that's acute in primary care and acute in rural areas. It's acute in uh, some urban deserts for care. Uh, it's just getting worse and worse. And I don't understand something that just seems like such a natural answer that's not about nurses and mid-levels, and it's not about uh, opening more schools, which is going to take too long. We don't. What we have is a, a xenophobia in this country of foreign MDs who have already gone through a residency in Mexico or India or Pakistan or Nigeria, and they have been trained, and they have a good command of the English language, and there's about 5,000 of them that aren't given residency slots because we don't have enough slots. And there's six states right now that have advanced their laws to allow residents of countries, foreign MDs, to be go past go in jail and go directly into the uh, the business because they all, all those states recognize that the shortages are going to affect every one of their residents. How do you feel about allowing foreign MDs to um, enter our system a lot easier and a lot less expensively and a lot less time consuming than is the current seven-year drill? Well, um, so one of the biggest problems is that I think we have created some extra work because our systems are so inefficient. Uh, we have created extra work for physicians. We, you know, we expect them to type or enter data, a lot of data. Um, and so, uh, and that, that could be one of the reasons why, pay, you know, physicians are burning out. The other thing is that a lot of the data that physicians enter is not necessarily useful uh, for the patient nor, nor for the outcome. And so, we need more intelligent systems where we are collecting the right data and and just that, not extra stuff. So that creates more work, which means that you need more physicians, which means that you'll, there'll be a shortage of physicians. So I feel that technology can make things more efficient so that you don't need a lot of extra work, which means you don't need extra physicians. But physicians can do best what they do best, which is taking care of the patient, which is the art of medicine. You know, that's where we need to focus um, physicians' uh, expertise in. Now, as far as, you know, uh, you know, how things are going to change in the future, nobody knows. You know, whether, you know, lower skilled people will be used to do certain jobs, that's a possibility. But... What the system right now is, I think it's, it's, it's making physicians do too much work, which is meaningless. Hmm. Good answer. There's an organization you belong call, to called the Society for Physician Entrepreneurs. It also has a chapter here in Houston, and I'm assuming in every major city. Tell me what goes on in those meetings. I know you're very involved in the leadership of that. Um, why should yes. physicians be attending those meetings? So if you think about healthcare, you know, who are the leaders in healthcare? You know, if you think about the science and the art of healthcare, it is the physicians, right? 
So we need to encourage physicians to innovate, to think outside the box, you know, think outside of whatever they are doing in a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, one of the ways they can think about these things is through entrepreneurship. Uh, we do have several chapters you know, within the United States and, and outside. Um, I run the San Francisco Bay Area chapter. Uh, we have about 500 or so physicians who are members and uh, we hold monthly meetings. And the great thing about the Bay Area is that we have a lot of startups in this area, especially you know, with the technology uh, industry and the biotech industry uh, booming in this, uh, in this region. So we bring in startups, uh, two or three of them, and they make presentations and get feedback from the physicians. Now, a lot of startups you know, have actually developed products and services and they go into the market and they try to implement it and the physicians won't use it. So this is a great place for them to test their models, test their uh, you know, market fit. You know, a physician will immediately say, hey, I'm not gonna use this, or this is great, you, know, you should do uh, X, Y, and Z. And so they get great advice they get great mentors uh, from physicians. So for physicians, it's a great way to um, get their, uh, um, I would say that the other part of their brains, you know, starts to work, which is, you know, wow, this is interesting. You know, this is a new area, you know, uh, and then they get involved. So physicians like it and also the startups like it. I went to our local chapters meeting last week or the week before, and uh, the speaker was interesting. The discussion was lively. I was the only guy there not in scrubs that actually had a suit on, and uh, I felt completely out of place, but loved every minute of it. Yes, uh, and most of our meetings are open to uh, non-physicians also, because we, we know that you know we need engineers, we need nurses, we need pharmacists, we need business people you know, to weigh in on things, you know, you know whether it makes business sense or not. Um, and, and so we have a good ecosystem of the startup community here. Well, it sounds like the Bay Area is a model for the rest of the country. I know Houston is medical city, but I don't think it's medical entrepreneur startup uh, capital like it is even remotely like San Francisco or even San Diego. Um, let's true. talk a little, a little bit about what is the current reading you're doing that is going to help physicians understand what you're trying to do and how they can advance their practices. Mm. Well, I'm reading a lot about uh, burnout. Um, one of the things that, you know, that, that comes to mind is um, Paul Deschamps. Um, he's a physician uh, with the IBM uh, Watson Group. He has written a great book on, on this, and I'm reading that right now. Um, but, you know, if you think about, you know, why, why are physicians burning out? I think one of the ways um, that physician lost control of that, of that switch, of that dial, which keeps increasing the speed of which physicians have to see patients. Now, if you think about you know, why do physicians have to see patients? You know, they're taking care of patients, but there are other methods to take care of patients other than seeing them in the clinic. And uh, until we realize that and, and change the system to fit that model, uh, physicians are always gonna be, you know, running faster and faster. 
on this treadmill. Teladoc is based in Dallas, Texas, not too far from this microphone, and uh, they're the largest in the country. I think they take care of every federal employee in the country. Um, so Texas has got a big telehealth presence here. And the interesting thing to me is that, that I learned from speaking with one of our guests, Nora Belcher, is that less than 1% of the patients are adopting it even when it's paid for in their insurance program. Telehealth is, is still an infant, isn't it? It is. I think there's a lot of potential there. But then again, you know, the telehealth should not be tied to the visit, which is, oh, if you do a, you know, one telehealth visit, you get paid X amount. So whenever you tie a visit or any service to a dollar amount, that's when we run into problems because the payer is going to say, oh, we are paying $10, but next year we're going to pay $8. Next year we're going to pay $6. So physicians will never win that race because as long as the payers have the control of what they're going to pay uh, the unit price, so the best way to deal with that is get rid of the unit. You know, I agree with every word you're saying. It's it's interesting, though, because, again, the older doctors are not going to adopt value-based care simply because it's too radical of a change for them too late in their career. Um, they're not going to change careers, obviously. And a lot of young people um, are going to work for corporations, so they're going to do whatever they're being told. But it seems to me that the, the whole concept of value-based care is not catching on as quickly as we had all hoped it would either. Yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there are, you know, vested interests, you know, it's going to shrink the whole pie um, of healthcare, And obviously, you know, there'll be losers uh, and, and they would fight uh, tooth and nail to not change that. Um, so that's expected. But then with uh, with the healthcare spending reaching 20% of your GDP, you know, that starts to affect every single person in the country and not just the people who are sick. And so do we want this, uh, you know, what as some great businessmen called it, parasite, uh, to suck up, you know, the, the resources from the rest of the country, the healthcare it's industry? In, it's interesting. I would push back on that last statement. So it was Warren Buffett and he called the healthcare yeah. the tapeworm in our economy, which is just the perfect analogy, tapeworm. But yes. it's, to attack the physicians, the caregivers, which represents less than 5%, particularly primary care, represents less than 5% of this $3 trillion spend. And you, you're now taking maybe 1% or 2 or 5 or 10% off of their earnings. It just seems like a not intelligent way to attack the, the cost problem. It, I'm going to take 1% out of 5%, and boy, are we going to save big bucks. No, I'm not talking about the physicians. I'm talking about the other 90% of the costs. The other 90% of the costs are controlled by physicians, or at least most of it. The hospitalizations, the, the medications, you know, the procedures. So all those things are controlled by physicians, but the physicians are not getting the, the benefit of, of, of working hard. And so I would propose a system where physicians get paid more rather than less. Mm-hmm. We agree. What is your message if you could fly an airplane over all of America with a banner on it? What would that message be to Americans? We are spending uh, so much money on health care, and we are not getting the best care. 
we already have a gold mine of data in our electronic health records. I think we should go in and take a peek and pull out those nuggets and use it in our practice so that patients are healthier and the outcomes are better. Excellent. What is the best way to find you, Dr. Chetapali, if folks want to contact you to learn more? The best way to find me is on LinkedIn, uh, Yuli K. Cheripali, uh, uh, MD, MPH. Uh, you can search me. There's not many Cheripalis on LinkedIn, so you, it should be easy to find me. And Yuli is spelled U-L-I. That's how I found you exactly. That's right. That's Terrific. Right. Well, thank and, you very much for your time. This has been a great interview, and I've enjoyed every minute of it, and we'll get you back to see how you're progressing. And let me put a plug in for my book, if you don't mind. Of course. Um, I recently wrote a book. It's called Punish the Machine, uh, the promise of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Uh, the website is punishthemachine.com. You can buy this book online, uh, on Amazon, or anywhere else books are sold. So thank you very much again for your time. We're looking forward to uh, watching your career. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.